you are a four or five-year-old child and you'd like to be a part of our Sprite, Sprouts, Sprite, look, it's Sprite color, Sprouts, uh, children's Bible uh, study, you can go upstairs right now with the McLeans. The rest of you, I invite you to open with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Maybe you've heard something along these lines said before, but when God wants to make a mushroom, it takes six hours. When God wants to make an oak tree, it takes 60 years. Question? What is He making out of us? This is a statement that reflects the reality that God's plan for us is not just some flash in the pan, momentary conversion, and then that's it. God intends for us to be a people who are rooted and established and who grow strong and healthy in the midst of a culture and a world that is tossing and turning and, and, and moving every which way. God has a plan for us to be firmly planted, praise God, by streams of living water so that we can yield our fruit and season and our leaf does not wither and all that we do we prosper. This work of God is something that takes time. And when we talk about it, we refer to it as discipleship. We refer to that, that work, that process of God establishing us, not just as some mushroom that you can flick over, but as a stable and solid, majestic oak. It takes years. Now this is good news because we're the ones who are invited to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this means that God intends to faithfully and consistently work in our lives and continually mature and grow us. I'm so glad that God loves me so much that He doesn't just save me and prepare me for eternity with some form of fire insurance and then just let me live the rest of my life. But that His Spirit lives inside of me and continually conforms me to look more and more like Jesus in my practical life. That He lovingly, graciously, patiently deals with me. And like Barrett shared this morning, He knows me and He knows you completely, fully. And He loves us powerfully, even in spite of all of our sin, our weakness, our failure. We're invited to be disciples. We have an opportunity this morning to look at Paul's ministry in Corinth here in Acts chapter 18. And this is the first time that Paul is able to really do an extensive, intensive, long labor of discipleship in a church. God allows Paul to stay, and he's going to get to in Ephesus later on, but here in Corinth he's able to stay for a longer period of time. And really invest in people. And we're going to see one couple in particular. We're in Acts chapter 18. But before we read the text, I want to give a little bit of background to what's going on. This is the conclusion of Paul's second missionary journey. We have been as a church working through the book of Acts for some time with some breaks in between. And we've broken it into, broken it into three parts. The first part, Acts 1 through 8, we saw the church established in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit came upon the people of God like Jesus promised He would. And He empowered them to be different. 
He empowered them to live the life that God had designed and called them to live. He empowered them to preach the good news of the gospel to the people of Jerusalem and beyond. And a church was multiplying in Jerusalem. And of course, there was some reaction by the world. There was opposition. Satan tried to snuff it out. But in Acts uh, 8 through 13, we saw that the church was not only established in Jerusalem, we saw from that point that it began to be uh, expanded throughout all of Judea. It grew from Jerusalem into Samaria and the other parts of Judea, just like Jesus told them in Acts 1 8, that when the Holy Spirit came upon them, the believers, they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's in Acts chapter 8 when we see that that second step is taken. And then we come to the third part in Acts chapter 13 where we zoom in on a particular church, not the home church of Jerusalem, but the missionary church of Antioch in Acts chapter 13, where we're going to see this last part of of Jesus' promise fulfilled, that the church would be extended to the ends of the earth. And it begins from Antioch, which was a Gentile, primarily Gentile church. They sent out two missionaries initially, Paul and Barnabas, and they went throughout the region of Asia Minor and shared the gospel. They shared the gospel throughout the Mediterranean region and they came back and they reported the amazing things that God had done. And then they go on a second missionary journey. And this is the last part of that second missionary journey. I'll ask Stephanie to pull the map up. This is the second missionary journey. And we've already covered, they left from Antioch. Oh, sorry, don't go there yet. I did. I put some arrows on there. We've had people say, can't see, not sure where you're pointing, so you need a laser pointer. And I don't want a laser pointer, so we put some arrows. But they have already gone through, as you see, Galatia from Antioch, Asia Minor. They sailed over uh, into Thessalonica and Berea and then down south to Athens. And today we'll see Paul moves from Athens. Now you can click it to uh, Corinth, which is right there in Achaia. We're going to see his ministry in Corinth, and then briefly we'll see him leave from Corinth, and he's going to sail across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus, which is right there, and he's going to be there very briefly before he sails back south through the Mediterranean, going back to, well, that's the port, and then he's going to go into Jerusalem, and then he'll go back up north to Antioch. That's the, that's the journey that he's going to take, just so you see. He's going to cover all that ground, all those arrows in these verses that I'm about to read to you. But before he gets to Corinth, it's important to remember that over the course of these two missionary journeys, Paul has seen some amazing things. God has worked in miraculous ways. Thousands of people have come to faith in Jesus. Many have been healed of physical illness or set free from demonic possession. He has witnessed firsthand the indescribable, powerful work of the Spirit of God. But he's also suffered lots of hardship. He has been beaten. He has been mocked. He was stoned and literally left. They thought he was dead, but either God protected him from dying or rose him from the dead. He has been run out of town many times, but many scholars say that actually what happened to him 
in Athens, which is the, where he was, we saw it last week, just before he got to Corinth, he didn't really get beat or anything like that. He was really just kind of ignored. They were largely apathetic. They were disinterested in the message that he was preaching. And many, many scholars say that this left him in a pretty miserable state. When he gets to Corinth, he's a little bit, um, well, he's not, he's, not, he's not all that excited or happy, it appears. In fact, he says as much when he writes later back to the church at Corinth. He says, look, when I came to you, brothers, I came to you in weakness and trembling and much fear. This is how he came to them at Corinth. So he walks the 50 miles to Corinth from Athens after suffering terrible beatings in Philippi, civil rejection in Thessalonica and Berea, and indifference in Athens. And so here we are in Acts 18. I invite you to follow along with me. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves." I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Censure, he had, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. The word of the Lord. 
we're going to see in this passage how disciples are made, among many other things. The main idea is that God will make Himself known as you strive to walk with Him and make disciples. I want to walk through section by section and see some important pointers about how disciples are made. And you'll see that it is a co-labor. It's a work of God. Yet, it's something that we do with intentionality. God is in sovereign control. He has to do the work. But we also have to be obedient. Like we sang that song. We get to, we get to be a part of this work. Yet not I, but Christ in me. So I want us to see first of all in the first four verses that God will use your vocation for His mission. There's something of tremendous importance that we see in the relationship between the Apostle Paul and this couple that's mentioned a couple of times in this passage, Aquila, the husband, and his wife, Priscilla. When Paul came to Corinth, he found this man and his wife, and they were tent makers. They had a business working with leather, making tents and other things. They made other things out of leather, and it was the same trade that Paul did. Paul was accustomed to doing. We know that Paul, oftentimes, for much of his ministry, he was self-funded. He goes into Corinth, and he goes. He, he has an intention to preach the gospel to lost people. That's why he's there. And one of the things that he has to do while he's there is, well, eat and have a place to live. And so he's taking care of these basic needs. He finds this couple of people, Priscilla and Aquila, who have a business doing the very thing that he knows how to do. And maybe they had a help wanted sign up, or maybe they had posted an ad on Facebook, whatever it was called back in the first century, and they needed help. And so he goes and he says, look, I can make tents. And he got two things when he met with them, actually more than that, but two practical things. He got a job, which was a way to make an income, to eat and cover the cost for whatever, whatever costs he would incur in order to do ministry uh, there in Corinth, he also found a place to live. And even more than that, he found some companions. He built a relationship with this man and woman, and he was intentional in this relationship. Everything that you do as a child of God, we'll see in this example, is significant. We have a tendency to think that only church things are important to God. Like what I mean by that, only when we're specifically sharing the gospel, handing out a tract, doing Bible study, going on a mission trip, or participating in a Christian club, and trying to reach other people like that, only those things are significant. But as a child of God, He is interested in every single aspect of our lives. Think about this, parents. You have, some of you have children, or you've had, you have grown children. When you have a child, you have goals and aspirations for that child that are primary, right? I mean, they're the most essential. And if you're a Christian, first among those is that he or she would walk with Jesus. That he would have a relationship with God. That he would be saved. And you have other aspirations and hopes for this child. But you know, not every single thing that your child does 
fits right into those aspirations. But it doesn't mean that you don't care. I mean, I have sat through countless things that otherwise I would have no interest in except for the fact that my kids love them. And I love to see my kids be kids. Do kid things. And God is the same with us. And God is our loving Father. He uses all of the things that we're engaged in. He's intentional. For instance, if you have an interest in some particular thing, whatever it may be, hobby, if you have a skill that enables you to do some particular vocation, job, do you know you have that because your Father, your Creator, who like Psalm 139 says, knit you together in your mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made you. He made you that way. If it's there, He put it there for a reason. Even your weaknesses, by the way, they're there for a reason. Now, some of them are there because of your own dumb choices that you've made. But God has a purpose and a plan for it even still. Your weakness reminds you of your desperate dependency upon God. It helps you to realize it should. If you'll realize that God is loving, He loves you still, go to Him. Don't run from Him. Run to Him. Your weakness is calculated to make you realize that in your weakness, His power is made perfect. Paul had to learn. Three times I asked the Lord to remove it. He didn't. Instead, He helped me realize that in my weakness, His power is made perfect. My weakness reminds me of my desperate dependence upon the Lord. Now let me keep going. Everything that we do is significant. Paul Paul did his work because he needed to. But he also did his work with open eyes to the plan of God. God had purposes in, in giving him the skill of making tents. And one of the purposes was so that at this point, in approximately 50 A.D., he would have the opportunity to meet this couple who had the same skill. He probably wouldn't have encountered them and certainly wouldn't have had such a deep relationship with them had he not been a tent maker himself. Yet the fact that he was a tent maker gave him a specific opportunity with these specific people. Your work gives you opportunity to witness. We should appreciate the abilities, the, the jobs that God gives us because as a Christian, as a child of God, we ought to go to work with the, with the understanding, not just that I have to do this, but that God has me here for some reason. That you're going to encounter specific opportunities that no one else will have, that you wouldn't have if it weren't for that job. Let me just challenge you, brothers and sisters. Do you go to work like this? Do you go to work with, with this intentionality? Now this, this means, yes, we should look around with open eyes for opportunities in the workplace or relationships that are created as a result of the work that we do and, and be faithful to share the gospel in those relationships. But this also means, by implication, that if our work is supposed to give us opportunities to share the gospel, then there's a certain manner in which we ought to work, right? If we're lazy, dishonest, corrupt, 
bad workers, then we're kind of going to hinder our witness, right? So we should work heartily as unto the Lord, the Bible tells us. We should be faithful and diligent, hardworking people, realizing that even, even when we're teaching in the classroom, or coaching a sport, or doing work behind a desk on a computer. We're doing it unto the Lord. We should do it with the expectation that doing this, I can please God in doing this, and if I do it in such a way that pleases God, it will open doors and give me other opportunities to make Jesus known. But we also see in this example of Paul, I mentioned that he's not just working because he loves making tents so much. <laughs> Doesn't say how much he did or didn't love making tents. We don't know if Paul loved that job or hated that job, but we know that he did it because he needed to. And we see this picture that your resources are useful in the kingdom. You work a job. Yes, to do a task, to get something done and make some kind of contribution to the world. But mostly, it's to make money, right? For many of us. We need, you know, if you don't work, you don't eat. But Paul was doing it not just so that he could eat, but because he could go back to Jerusalem and eat. He's there in Corinth and in Athens before and Berea and Thessalonica and all the places that he's been along the way, specifically because he's intentional about sharing the gospel with people who have never heard it. He wants to make sure they hear it. And he's working so that he can help fund this ministry. And this is a beautiful picture. Paul talks to the Corinthians about this. He mentions that you know those who do the labor of, of pastor should be paid, but when I was with you, I didn't take anything from you because I didn't want there to be a stumbling block. So what did I do? I made tents. I sewed leather together. I worked with my hands. I worked another job. He was bivocational, you could say. Because he, was, he, he knew that he could obtain resources that were useful in the kingdom of God. And this is just a picture of how God will use your vocation for mission. Now we'll see this couple, these business owners, Priscilla and Aquila, who had come from Rome, which by the way, they came from Rome. We don't know if they were Christians already or if Paul in his meeting them was able to share the gospel with them. What we do know is that whether they were Christians before or just became Christians, Paul spent significant time with them. He was intentional in his relationship and we've already read it, but we'll look at it a little more carefully in a few minutes about how we know he was intentional. He spent time helping them, making sure that they knew how to walk with God, how to know God, and how to make, help others know God, how to make Him known. Tent making has actually become a term that is used today, especially in regards to uh, mission work. The IMB has made a push over the last uh, several years to 
open the door for more and more missionaries to go among the most difficult to reach people in the world. And one of the ways that they've done that is instead of just having what they call career missionaries, those who are fully funded by the International Mission Board, they've said, you know what, God may put it on some people's heart who have the ability to do construction or education or whatever the case may be, uh, medical field to to." To go and plant their lives in another country and work a job just like they would in the United States of America. But do it there so that they can have opportunities to preach the gospel to people who don't have as much access to it. And they call this tent making. Because it's exactly what the Apostle Paul was doing. This is tent making. And God has used tent makers throughout history. And it's important for us to realize this. That the mission of God is not just accomplished by professional missionaries or ministers. The mission of God is accomplished by the people of God. And the people of God have a variety of skills and talents and abilities. And they're able to do all sorts of things. And each one is created uniquely by our God. And He's given it to us intentionally. And when we're all doing what we're gifted to do, it opens So many doors for the gospel. So much more effective than just having one person preach and trying to amass as many people as we can into some stadium so they can hear the professional speak the gospel. For instance, a tent maker couple is responsible for translating the New Testament for five million Muslims while he did university teaching and she tutored English. A science teacher evangelized his students in rural Kenya and preached every third Sunday in a local church. A symphony violinist in Singapore had Bible studies with fellow musicians. A faculty person and an engineer set up a Christian bookstore in the Arab Gulf region. There are so many stories of what God has done through people who aren't even that are considered missionaries under mission organizations, even though they're not funded by the mission organization. What a tremendous blessing they're able to be. God uses in many ways through providing resources for your family and for the kingdom of God, through giving you unique opportunities to share the gospel. God uses our vocation. So whether it's your job, whether it's a, a paying job, whether it's being a homemaker, a stay-at-home mom, whether it's being a student, any of those things qualify as vocation. Even as somebody who is retired, there is something that you do to, that you spend your time doing and you need to understand that this is useful in the kingdom of God and can be such a blessing to the church. Second, not only will God use your vocation for His mission, God will give direction as you follow Him. So Priscilla and Aquila were there in... I I, I got sidetracked. I I don't know what sidetracked me, but I got sidetracked. It happens regularly. Squirrel? No. Um, Priscilla and Aquila had come from Rome because the Scripture tells us Claudius had made all the Jews leave Rome. This was in about A.D. 49. He made all the Jews leave Rome because there was a stirring. 
there was some division among the Jews. And they were growing, at least in Claudius's eyes, but it wasn't the Jews who were growing per se. What happened is there were Christ- or Jews from Rome who were at Pentecost, who heard the gospel, who went back to Rome, who preached the gospel. And just like we were following the journey of Paul and seeing him go into synagogues, preach the gospel, some of them believe, they follow him. Well, they continued to go, many, most of the time they continued to go to the synagogue, but there became some dissension between the Jews who accepted Christ and the Jews who rejected Christ as their Messiah. Because this is kind of a big deal. Jesus Jesus either is everything that we've been hoping and waiting for, or He isn't. And if He isn't, but He claimed to be, and you're claiming that He is, that's, that's a problem. And so, because of the dissension among the Jews and the spreading of the Jews in Rome, Claudius said, y'all got to get out of here. So, Priscilla and Aquila, whether they were Christians or not, They were familiar with the gospel because it was being spread about in Rome. And they're here in Corinth to continue their trade. They meet Paul. Paul's working with them. He's sharing the gospel with them. He's pouring into them. He's working. He's going once a week. Notice he's going once a week on the Sabbath to the synagogue. And then we see that God will give direction as you follow him. In verse 5, it says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So he's sharing the gospel message to the Jews, the one you've been waiting for, the Messiah. That's what Christ means. Jesus is He. Jesus died. Your Messiah came to the world. He lived a perfect, sinless life, fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture. He went to the cross and died a death that he didn't deserve to die, but he did it so that he could pay for your sin. He could be the lamb who is slain for the sins of the world. You no longer have to carry out these sacrifices and sacrifice the lambs and bulls. No longer Jesus died to satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf. And then on the third day, he rose again. And He reigns as King in heaven. One day He's coming back to claim His people for Himself. And everyone who trusts in Him can have all their sin forgiven and can have eternal life. Paul's preaching this message to the Jews. And after Mark, I mean, I'm sorry, Silas and Timothy get there, He's preaching it, it's the the wording here in verse 5 where it says he was occupied with the word. It means a couple of things. It means that he was doing it day in and day out. And also, the time sequence here is such that Silas and Timothy arrive and then Paul is able to shift gears once his help arrives. He's able to shift gears from tent making and sharing in the synagogue once a week to being engaged in it every single day, full time. It's like in this moment, Paul went from being a bivocational church planter to full time pastor. That's what happened in this moment. We see here. And here's why. When Silas and Timothy arrived, they had been back in Thessalonica and in Berea, and they received help from the Macedonian churches 
financial support, as well as uh, they came with words of encouragement and blessing for Paul, who was severely discouraged and working hard to be able to continue in ministry. They came with help from the Macedonian churches so that he was enabled to give himself more fully to this ministry of sharing the gospel and teaching people how to live in Christ. And so Paul goes full time because the Macedonian churches helped and they sent it with Silas and Timothy. But as he's engaged in this full time ministry, something happens. He's preaching the gospel in the synagogue and we've seen same story, different place. We've seen this happen time and time again. Of course, what's going to happen? Some people are going to believe. Some people are going to get upset. That's exactly what happens here in Corinth. So it says in verse 6, they opposed and reviled him. And what did he do? He just shook out his garments. And he said, your blood be on your own heads. I'm, I'm guilty of no man's blood. In other words, I'm not responsible. I've shared the gospel with you and you have determined the verdict. You don't want to hear it. There's nothing more I can do. And so he determines that instead of continuing to fight, I'm not going to try to dig in my heels anymore because there are people, if you're saying no, there are people who are hungry and I'm turning to the Gentiles. And so he does. And he has a fruitful ministry. If we're going to be engaged in the will of God for our lives, one of the things that we have to learn to do as those who are followers of Jesus and we want to see others walk with Jesus, we have to look for those who are hungry for God. Paul could not change the hearts or the minds of these Jews. He told them. They said no. They began to revile him. And he said well, there are other people that need to hear. If you don't want to hear it, I'll share it with others. You can't make people follow Jesus. So we see it in verses 6 through 8. He left there. I read verse 6, verse 7. He left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house happened to be next door to the synagogue. And then even though he does that, even though he stopped preaching in the synagogue, there was a man, Crispus, who had already heard, who happened to be the leader of the synagogue. Now, this is an influential man. He's the one. He's not a professional minister. He is also, he works another job. He has a job in the community. But he is a layman who is responsible for organizing all the events, the worship at the synagogue. He's, he's organizing everything. So he's a man of a lot of influence among the Jews. And we see that. In verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. You see, logic would tell us that if Paul wanted to reach somebody like Crispus, he would have to stay the course and continue to preach, even though people are, you know, even though they hurl stones at him. And no, we need to be sensitive. To the Spirit of God. Look for those who are hungry. Paul does that. And God is able. God is able to work on those who are still in the synagogue. Once Paul goes on. 
We've seen this throughout history in, in mission work. I mean, the, the story of the mission explosion, or the, I'm sorry, the church explosion in China in the 50s. All the Western missionaries were forced to leave China, and they lamented. We weren't, we weren't seeing much fruit yet. Why do we have to leave? The people are desperate. They need the gospel. But of course, for decades, they had sown seeds. Planted and planted and planted. And though they hadn't seen any fruit, they left and were discouraged. And then several decades later, when the door was opened back for missionaries to go to China, they came back expecting, expecting to see that that the situation had regressed. And what they saw was the church was the church was multiplying. It was exploding. Why? Because it's up to God. It's God's work. He called them to go and plant seeds. He was sovereign in having them removed. He watered those seeds. He produced the fruit. And they just happened to get sent uh, decades later, missionaries go back and they see what God has done. It's not the result of some man's work. It's God's work. And Paul is demonstrating that. And then in verse 9, we see the Lord... Do a couple of things. He gives a gentle rebuke as well as a pretty strong encouragement to the Apostle Paul. Because the Lord knew Paul. He knew that he was discouraged. He knew that he had had a hard time. He knew what his attitudes were that even Silas and Timothy and Priscilla and Aquila couldn't, couldn't put their finger on. The Lord knew it. And so he speaks to him in a vision. He says, don't be afraid. That's a, that's a consistent command in Scripture from God to his children. But the Lord tells Paul, don't be afraid. Precisely because he knew. Now we think of Paul as bold and courageous, and he was. But Paul is just a man like you and me. And the Lord knew that in this season of life, he was he was full of fear. He knew that the Jews were upset with him. He stopped preaching there. But now the ruler of the synagogue and all of his household is baptized. And that's exciting. But the last time this happened, the last time a move of God took off in the synagogue, it resulted in people chasing me from Antioch of Pisidia to Iconium to Lystra to Derby until they finally caught up with me and stoned me to death. Please, God, thank you for... Thank you for resurrecting me. We overlook the fact that it had to hurt a lot. He endured a lot of pain and suffering. And his pain and suffering was real pain and real suffering. And he didn't want to go back to it. Willing, perhaps, but not desiring of it. The Lord says, don't be afraid. It's a rebuke. He's putting his finger on his fear. He's identifying it. He's saying, stop. But Lord, how? And so then he encourages him. Go on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you. What more do you need? <laughs> the God of angel armies is with him. I am with you and I have many 
in this city who are my people. I'm with you. The work here isn't done. I'm at work in people's hearts and I'm directing your steps to them, so stay the course. I'm going to protect you. No one's going to be able to harm you. Now, God and God alone is able to say this to Paul. And this, by the way, this verse is not a a carte blanche promise to all of us that we can go out and do anything in the name of Jesus and no one will ever be able to harm us. That's just not true. People harm people who do things in the name of Jesus. Paul had already experienced that. This is a specific promise for a specific location and God upholds this promise. God gives him an assurance. He's saying, look, I know you're fearful. Stop. I'm with you. No one's going to harm you because we have work to do. So let's go. Trust in God to work in you and through you. God's rebuke and encouragement of the Apostle Paul here is a picture of how God works in his children so that he can work through his children. And this is just a subtle reminder to you, brothers and sisters, that look, God can do and intends to do amazing things, indescribable things through us. But it's not, it doesn't happen when we say, you know what, I'm going to be intentional about sharing the gospel and I'm going to be intentional about making disciples. Those are good things. But first and foremost, let's be intentional about walking with God. Because the gospel that you share And the disciples that you make will not be as potent unless you're walking in communion with God, in fellowship with God, in the fullness of the Spirit of God. And so God graciously comes down to Paul and he deals with him. He confronts the sin of fear and he encourages him and he fixes his focus and says, trust in me. I have people here. Trust God to work in you and through you. And then verse 11. And he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. As I mentioned, this is the longest that he had stayed in a particular location on his missionary journeys to this point. We see that Paul is not primarily concerned or he's not just concerned about amassing as many converts as he possibly can, but Paul's heart is that they would be mature in Christ. That they would walk the road of discipleship. A disciple, that word that we use, it means student or learner, pupil, but not in the sense of like, you know, public school classroom. It's more in the sense of an apprentice. Somebody like if Paul wanted to learn the trade of tent making, he would go to somebody like Priscilla and Aquila who had a well-established business and were able to teach him the skill. And he would work for them and he would learn from them. And usually in the first century, he would live with them. This is how somebody would learn a trade. And that was called a disciple, an apprentice of that person. And so Paul, he's He's intending for followers of Christ to learn the ways of Christ. And it takes time. It takes devotion. It takes commitment. Paul commits to teach. And the implication is that the people committed to learn, to live, to grow. If we're going to see God make disciples, then we have to commit to invest deeply in those who do follow God. So look for those who are hungry for God. And when somebody is ready to really walk with God, we who know how to walk with God, 
should invest deeply in those people. And then understand that God will sustain you as long as He wills. God gave Paul that promise that no one's going to harm you. But then we see what happens. He's been there a year and six months. And then this happens in verse 12. Gallio, the proconsul, that's kind of the governor of the senatorial district of Achaia. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, they bring this charge, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Paul, he's about to defend himself. Actually, I don't think that's at all what he's about to do. Paul, every time when he's given this opportunity, you know what he does? Instead of defending himself, he puts himself in more danger. And hey, God said, I'm with you. Don't fear. No one's going to be able to harm you. So he's got the assurance of that promise of God. He's opening his mouth. He's about to preach the gospel. Gallio didn't want to hear it though, so he silenced him. Before he could speak, Gallio said to the Jews, look, if it were a matter of some terrible crime, then I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, look, this is, this is a religious issue among your, you religious people. I'm not interested in it. He said, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them away from the tribunal. And then those whom he drove away, they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. Now, it's suggested that Sosthenes, actually, he became a follower of Christ. We're not told exactly how, but when Paul addresses the Corinthians, he mentions Sosthenes as a brother in the Lord. So Paul is protected, but Sosthenes gets beaten. After this, we'll see, we see in verse 18 that Paul just stayed a little while longer. He recognized that God, he protected him there, but he recognized, okay, God, you gave me a promise to stay here while you were protecting, but now I can see that it's catching up. Wisdom, discerning the will of God, trusting God to direct. Okay, God, I'll stay here. I'll, I'll trust you to help me overcome my fear, to overcome my doubts, and I'm going to do what you cause me to do. And then all of a sudden he sees that it seems like God may be leading me in another direction. So we can trust God to sustain you, us as long as He wills. Let me make a side note, some bonus fries again. Gallio's name as the proconsul of Achaia has actually been found on an inscription at Delphi in central Greece. Uh, it's known as the Delphi inscription, uncovered by archaeologists. And this actually proves the validity of what Luke records for us in these events that happen in Acts chapter 18. And this is just a, a, a hope, a, a reminder, a reinforcement to us as the people of God that what we have in the, book, in, the, in the book of Acts, in the Bible, is not just fanciful religious thoughts. It's actual history. Luke wrote as a historian, and when he records the miracles of God's work, he sees those as just, a, just as much a reality as Gallio the proconsul of Achaia. Now, we don't need archaeology to affirm the truthfulness of Scripture. God's Word is true. But it is encouraging when you see these, these things that people find in the world all around us is trying to say, oh, it's just a book. Oh, it's got contradictions. Oh, you can't trust it. You can trust it. You can trust it. And I love whenever the world has to deal with, what do you say about that? 
Archaeology has confirmed the Bible once again. But it's not about that. I want them to know Jesus. So, third, we see that God will use your vocation for His mission. God will give direction as you follow Him. And then finally, God uses multiplication to make disciples. So Paul is going to leave Corinth after a year and a half there of teaching and trying to build not just converts, but disciples, people who are committed to walking with Jesus, knowing God and making Him known themselves. And so as he leaves, we pick up in verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. So he took this couple with them. The one that he lived with in Corinth at first. The one that he worked with. He had a unique opportunity to really invest in their lives because of their common bond that they shared about making tents. And then it became more about Jesus than about making tents. The relationship did so much so that when he set sail to go to his next post, he's headed to Ephesus. He takes them with him. Why does he take them with him? Well, let's see. Verse 19. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. He went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, just for a short time. They asked him to stay for a longer period. He said no. And when he left, he said, look, I'll come back if God wills it. And he set sail from Ephesus. So what he went to do with Aquila and Priscilla, he went to go drop them off at Ephesus to do the very same thing that he's been doing. To tell people about Jesus and see God establish a church. Paul's going to come back to Ephesus. Luke records, we'll see it next Sunday. God willing, we'll see that Aquila and Priscilla actually have a very proactive, a very important role in the church there at Ephesus. That they are equipped to be able to handle the word of God and even help uh, correct another preacher of God's word. And Apollos, if you keep on reading, you'll see that they do that. We see that what Paul evidently did with Priscilla and Aquila was he equipped them to know God and to help others know God. To know God and to make Him known. This is a beautiful example. Over the course of that year and a half that he was there in Corinth, Paul continually, he made sure that they knew the gospel. That they were trusting in Jesus. He made sure that they knew the basics of what it means to have a personal relationship with God in Christ. And then he made sure they knew how to, how to rightly understand the scriptures. And how to teach the scriptures to other people. And what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And the importance of sharing the gospel. And all of these spiritual disciplines. He made sure that they knew these things. And once he knew that they were equipped, he said, you know what? We're going to Ephesus and I can't stay. Maybe God will allow me to come back. But these two have been equipped and they're ready and he leaves them. And he's able to watch and so are we. Watch God work through those who he's working in. Now, Paul, as I I read the New Testament, I kind of get the... uh, I come to the conclusion that Paul's somewhat of a very hands-on type leader. 
somewhat domineering, maybe a little likes to be in control. But at least in this instance, we see that he's able to really let go. This is a picture of trusting God, that this is not, after all, my work. It's not my gospel that I'm preaching. It's not my church that's being started. This belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And anything that I'm doing that's accomplishing uh, the will of God, it's only happening because God's doing it in me. And if He can do it in me, He can do it in anybody He wants to. And so His leaving Aquila and Priscilla is a picture of trusting God to work through them. And this is something, if we're going to be disciples who make disciples, we have to learn how to just trust God to work in people. This involves patience. This is something that I have to realize as a, as a child. I mean, I am a child, but as a, as a parent of children. That's what I meant. As a parent with children. Then you know what? Sometimes I expect God's work to look a certain way in my children and in other people because, well, that's how it happened in me. And here at the Oaks, we've shared our stories of grace, our testimony. We share them often. And one of the beautiful things about the story of God's grace at work in our lives is that they're so unique. Now, there's, there's similarity. All of us were convicted of our sin and realized that we desperately needed a Savior. We realized that Jesus is the one and only Savior. And we came to a place of trusting Him as our Savior and surrendering everything to Him. But the way we came to that place and how God worked that out is unique. And it's, it's beautiful and it's exciting to be able to hear that. And this is just a reminder that, look, God is able to work in His people. God is able to work in His children. We don't have to micromanage. We can trust God. And we need to trust God. Paul, of course, does that. He watches God work through those who he's working in in Aquila and Priscilla. As he leaves them there in Ephesus, he goes to the synagogue to reason with the Jews once just to kind of plant some seeds. Hey, I'm sharing this. You want to know more about it? No, I'm not staying. But go talk to Aquila and Priscilla. If the Lord wills, I'll come back. Stir up some trouble for them to deal with. I'm out of here. Finally, as Paul leaves them, verse 22, he sails back. It's a long sail. He sails all the way back to Caesarea, which is the port uh, just west of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's not mentioned here, but it says he went up, greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. That went up and went down is usually a reference to Jerusalem. And so what probably happened here, Paul Lands at the port right there by Jerusalem. He goes up to the Jerusalem church. And what does he do? He tells them about everything that God's done on this second missionary journey. Hey, let me tell you about all these things that have happened. Tell you about the people who believe. Let me tell you about the opposition. Let me tell you about how God has has shown himself sovereign in control of all things. Like God is at work. And they're able to rejoice together. And then he leaves from there and he goes up north to Antioch, the church that sent him to do the same thing, to report to them, share testimony about God's work and about the disciples and no doubt about the fact that he was able to appoint elders and leadership in these churches. And they're like, hey, we're a church here and there's churches that are established over there. And even about Aquila and Priscilla. And he's like, you know, I don't even know what's going on in Ephesus. I went in the synagogue. I shared the gospel with them and and then I had to leave. 
but Aquila and Priscilla are there. Let's pray for them. They prayed for Aquila and Priscilla, no doubt. This is a beautiful picture. He didn't stay there. I mean, we don't know how long he stayed, but it's like verse 23. I stopped in verse 22 because even though it's the same paragraph in your Bible, verse 23 begins a whole new missionary journey. The third missionary journey begins in verse 23. After spending some time, he departed, went from one place to the next throughout Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. So he's just going back into the mission field first to encourage the disciples. But we're not going into the third missionary journey yet. It's enough to just think about what God has done in relation to how God makes disciples in Corinth who are then able to go to Ephesus. And we see this picture of God multiplying disciples. And I forgot to mention this last sub point. God uses multiplication um, to make disciples. It's important that we share with the church what God is doing. That's what Paul does in Jerusalem and in Antioch. He goes back to the church. And this is a picture of this reality. The disciples, followers of Christ, we don't live as rogue, maverick missionaries out on an island by ourselves. Even though Paul is traveling all over the place, he's doing so in partnership with the local church. Antioch commissioned him. They sent him off and he comes back to tell them because he realizes that even though the whole church isn't with him physically, they're partners with him in this ministry. And so this is, this is what it... To, to be a, a disciple of Christ means that we have to learn how to live in community with the family of God, the church. So I've got two questions in closing. That's the worship team to come back up. Number one. How are you making disciples? Are you a follower of Christ already? How are you making disciples this very moment? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you looking intentionally to help others who may be Christians already in their progress Are you intentionally investing in some younger in the faith believer to help him or her know the basics of walking with Jesus and living on mission as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? If not, I want to remind you it's the will of God for your life. I want to say, look, don't be afraid. Do not fear. Don't make excuses. God is with you. And He intends to use you. Your unique situation, the job you work, the skills you have, the hobbies you have, the places you spend your time, God intends to use it as a part of advancing His kingdom here on earth. Let's not just sit idly. Let's enjoy the ride that the Holy Spirit intends to take us on. You know, as we are faithful to not just sit still, comfortably, selfishly, we're actually, we're, we're actually enabled to enjoy the presence of God, a deeper relationship with God when we're obedient to, to, to the mission that God has for us. To realize that this life is not just about me, 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 me. 
when we start wanting to make disciples, we learn more of the Lord Jesus Christ than when we just sit here trying to be a good Christian. The other question I want to ask, not just how are you making disciples, are you a disciple of Jesus? Some of you aren't disciples of Jesus because you've never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've never surrendered your life. You've never stopped living the self-centered life that you've always lived. And you're still under the weight of the condemnation because of your sin. You're not a disciple of Jesus. You're a student of the world. You're under the power and influence, even though you may not realize it, of Satan. The good news for you is that that's not the life that God has designed for you to live. You can be born again with a whole new life. All of your sins wiped away. You can have a relationship with God. You can enjoy Him for all of eternity. You can be a part of His kingdom. The offer is available to you if you'll trust Him. In a moment, you'll have an opportunity to respond if that's you. And I want to invite you to come and talk with me. And I want, to, I want to help you understand what it means to come into a relationship with God through Jesus. Don't leave here without taking that opportunity. Without accepting the offer that God has made to you today. But you might already be, a father, you might already be born again. The question I asked wasn't, are you saved? I said, are you a disciple? Active, actively growing Learning, committed apprentice to the Lord Jesus. Maybe you've been in neutral. Maybe you just haven't been engaged. Perhaps this morning is just a reminder, a nudge from God to say, stop just coasting. Come and renounce everything. Lay everything down. 